Hello and welcome to Artcast, a podcast from the Royal College of Art, home to the next generation of creatives and the world's number one art and design university, representing the largest concentration of postgraduate artists and designers on the planet. We'll be bringing you insight into the philosophy behind the programs at the RCA by talking to staff, students and the wider RCA community about what we do here and how the work of architects, artists, communicators, designers and researchers affect the world at large. I'm Benji Jeffrey and today I'll be talking to Chris Mitchell about creative education and how this form of education can help people respond to the challenges of living with uncertainty. Chris is an experienced leader in UK higher education with expertise in strategy development, curriculum design and educational innovation and he is the Deputy Director of Academic Development here at the RCA. Thank you for joining us today, Chris. It's a pleasure. How are you doing? Very well. Good. So let's just jump in with the big difficult question straight away. So what makes a creative education distinct from other forms of education? I think this is such an interesting question. And I think one of the things for me that makes it it's so distinctive is the immediacy of some of these kind of fundamental educational principles. Because we have done exercises with a whole range of different uh, disciplines and ask them, what is learning? What is teaching? These really basic questions. And what's interesting is when you ask creative artists that question, very quickly they get to answers, really fundamental answers, like learning how to be, learning that, that, that fires your imagination and then allows you to then apply that imagination to the problems that you're, you're facing. Now, what's, I think, fascinating about that is if you spend time with other disciplines they will get to the same point often, but it takes a lot longer. Right. Is that immediacy you get with creative artists is a really clear sense of this is what I'm here to do. Mm -hmm. And also, compared to a lot of other disciplines, it's quite content light. Like if you sit down and talk to a whole range of different academics from different disciplines, they'll say, well, the things you need to know if you are a geologist or if you're an economist, are this, this and this and this. So that's the kind of fundamentals and you'll build from that. I don't think there is that in the creative arts and, and arguably in some areas like architecture or, or some of the designs areas, there's things definitely they will want to kind of teach you in order to be able to be uh, a functioning architect or designer. But a lot of the time, the canon is A, quite small and B, very fluid. And that's a really interesting part of the kind of creative arts is that notion that, that the rules, there aren't very many fixed rules to play with. And that gives you quite a large playground. It gives you quite a lot of space for, for your own imagination. Mm. It's almost like there's, there's two different tracks, isn't there, within this education? There's the, the technical side of things and then there's the, the cognitive side of things, which, which sometimes are, are more to do with undoing than, than doing. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, we've, we've debated at length the notion of, of undoing. Uh, and this came into kind of sharp relief for us when we were talking about the changes that have been to a whole range of different disciplines. So the RCA, obviously, is a postgraduate institution. Mm. And we've, we got very used to the idea that there's a whole range of undergraduate institutions providing us with students. And what happens when the sector changes is that the, the backgrounds that students bring with them changes. So, for example, in our case, ceramics and glass. We've got a ceramics and glass course. For, we've had it for many, many years. It's been incredibly successful. And it built on the idea that you will have probably have done an undergraduate degree in ceramics and or glass. 
What's interesting is that that has changed. The sector has changed. There are fewer of those undergraduate degrees. And some of the assumptions that people might bring with them, that people understand sort of the technical side, the material, how material behaves around uh, clay or, or with the glass, is when you take those out, initially, I think there's that temptation to kind of go, well, that's a shame. But I think what's been really interesting in order to continue to flourish as a postgraduate degree thing is, is that idea of saying, well, they don't necessarily have an understanding, a grounding in the technical property. So maybe we are going to have to do that as well at a postgraduate level. But what do they bring instead? Mm. What do we get from having students from a whole range of different backgrounds coming here? And I think that has been a really interesting process and a really good example for me of the different ways in which this institution and other institutions like it have had to adapt to the, the changing worlds and some of the, the assumptions that we may once have had about our students no longer being relevant. Mm. And I guess that kind of ties into the idea of, of the questioning of the canon as well, right? The, the, the questioning of what modes of knowledge are seen as uh, important or, you, you know, what forms of knowledge move between being a hobbyist and being a professional as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that, that fundamental question is if there isn't a well-established canon, what is it that we're doing here? Mm. That's a really fundamental question. You're spending a lot of time, you're spending a lot of uh, effort and, and resource in coming to study at a place like the RCA. And it's sometimes really difficult from a curriculum designer's point of view mm. is to say, well, in the absence of that canon, what am I getting? Now, for our answer is often we're creating the environment for you to develop the sort of intellectual, technical and professional skills to be able to flourish beyond but it's a lot harder sell than it is, I think, for us, than it is for, for some other disciplines who can be much more explicit. It's, it's about this, this and this. Mm. And you've been uh, taking the lead on the postgraduate certificate in art and design education here at the RCA. So are there any kind of examples of how, like, because again, the, the next layer, I guess, is how do you teach people to teach something that doesn't have anything to be taught? Or, you know, I'm being a bit cheeky with that. Yeah, you but, know. Yeah. And I, uh, that is the, often the thing about any kind of uh, educational uh, uh, degrees or educational development is that that notion of the snake eating itself mm. is that, that you're teaching about teaching. And I think for us, I mean, the, the, the PG cert that, that we launched here four years ago, and it has been through sort of many different hands. Other pe lots of people have been the program lead for that. I was there at the start, but I haven't always been the, the program lead. Is, is it changes, it morphs, uh, but it is about looking at the assumptions that people make and about making all of the decisions that you make as an educator explicit ones. Mm. So I think I've looked at a lot of different kind of programs and a lot of different institutions and some institutions will, will mandate people to go on these kind of um, internal PG certs. And then you get a lot of crossed arms. You right. get a lot of people saying, oh, I have to do this. And I think a lot of the fear about people who are mandated to do this kind of thing is, you're going to tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Right. And I don't think that's ever the case, because it's not as if we can say what's right. Mm. No one is going to be able to say, oh, there's been lots of research, uh, and we know that the best way of someone to learn is this. Mm. In fact, I've seen lots of people, not necessarily in this institution, but in a lot of different contexts, saying, research says this. And you're thinking... Yeah, give me 10 minutes and I'll find some research that says exactly the opposite. Yeah. Um, but I think it's that thing of, it's not necessarily telling you you're wrong. It's also not telling you you're right. 
Mm. It's about making sure that the decisions that you make as an educator are informed. You understand what it is that's informing them and you're explicit about that. So for me, it would be a success if someone comes out of that and saying, actually, the decisions I'm making, I still think are good ones, but I understand why I'm making them. Mm -hmm. And I understand what the impact of those decisions now are. Yeah. And I wonder, because the... There's a difficulty, isn't there? It went when education becomes more and more standardised, that you you can sometimes lose that flavour, that individual, that individual flavour, which is which is a real shame. So I think it's good that people, um, I suppose, these teaching programmes are about emboldening people to trust what they do rather than standardising. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a really interesting tension because I mean, I, in my role, uh, I spend a lot of time teaching education. Also, in uh, another part of my role is looking at curriculum design from an institutional point of view. Mm. And I'm often the sort of one on the other side of the table, kind of saying, well, write your learning outcomes, design the curriculum, evidence why you're doing this and, and what you're doing. And I think it, it comes fundamentally down to what is your approach to learning? Mm. What do you fundamentally think learning is? And I am an advocate of curriculum designers writing things down in learning outcomes in a kind of well-structured um, curriculum. But fundamentally, I think, my point of view, there are others, is that learning is a, is a fundamentally messy thing. Yeah. It cannot be pinned down. Yeah. It cannot be saying, well, if I do this, then that will happen. And, you know, so many studies have tried to demonstrate in a good way, if we do this, will it achieve what we want to achieve? And the answer is always, well, you might be able to, at best, demonstrate that someone can do something that they didn't do, couldn't do previously. It's almost impossible to demonstrate that the thing you did, your intervention, is a thing because it's not a scientific experiment. Yeah. You can't isolate them for the, the, the kind of multifarious variations of the world. Yeah. But that's okay. So as a curriculum designer, absolutely, you need to be really clear what you're doing, why you're doing it. My particular uh, take on, on what learning is, is expect it to be messy. Yeah. Expect students to go off in their own directions and glory in that. Yeah. And in this, this idea of messiness and in a world where we can find YouTube tutorials and where we can find conversations with people, why would someone go into a creative education and not just build it themselves? Oh, well, <laughs> part of me thinks if you can, great. Yeah. I think what... what studying or uh, unrolling in a, a program of study gives you is is yes you've got a lot of expertise behind you you've got a lot of institutional structures behind you that's saying that we have made all these decisions because we have tried and tested this in lots of different ways and we'll provide you with a structure but also i think it it really really helps to provide the structure of kind of motivations in a sense mm. is it's very easy to say if you're entirely on your own oh maybe i won't do it Whereas if someone is saying, right, we expect you to be doing this, um, so you'll be open up to more ideas than necessarily you would do if you're entirely um, guided by a YouTube algorithm. But it also creates a structure for you to kind of keep your motivation up. And I think crucially, it provides you other people to study with. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we say to, to curriculum designers here at the college and keep on saying, and I'm sure I'll keep on saying it as long as I, I am at the college, is... All this stuff matters. Your curriculum design, your discipline, all that matters. You matter as a teacher. It doesn't matter quite as much as the other students. We've asked this question in the student survey 
every single year for as long as I can remember, what is the best thing about the college? And the answer is always the same thing other students. Mm. Now, for some people, I could find that quite depressing because you spend a lot of time and resource in developing the, the kind of physical and intellectual atmosphere. But I think it's great. Yeah. I think you're tapping into the fundamental thing is learning alongside other people. Mm. And I think that is quite a difficult thing to replicate on your own. And I think there's the the joy in that of people that are on these kind of flexible paths, coming back to what you were saying about ceramics and glass before, you know, being part of a network where maybe someone's done physics, someone's done fine art, someone's done textiles, and actually you're all together doing digital direction, for example. It, it's quite a kind of like, there's some great friction there and excitement. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's really interesting about some of these the new programmes that we're offering in September is that they've all been developed at the same time. And it enables us to put in the structures to do a proper electives. So mm. you can come in on this programme. And from my point of view, I'm thinking, well, you know, in order to be able to kind of progress to a program on what you'd have done this unit and this unit and this unit builds on that. But at various points, whether it's the part-time or the full-time option, they're going to get to go off and do an elective in a completely different school with completely different staff. And I think it's brilliant. Mm. And one of these pathways, which I believe you're leading on, is the creative education pathway. What does that look like? Well, what we've done is it's not a sort of introduction to education. Right. So we took the decision quite early on, not just to do a sort of a kind of a basic um, education program, because I think it's because um, also we want to give options for our own students to potentially choose electives in our area as well. And that wouldn't be particularly um, palatable to them. So we've got we're offering up two electives to the rest of the college, which, again, our, our students are free to take as well. One of which is called um, Education for Change, which is the idea of, of designing and delivering education that's specifically addressing social issues, which is a massive and increasingly big uh, issue. Um, and it's about, again, providing the kind of intellectual um, and sort of professional environment to engage with those issues and to try things out, which is the kind of fundamental uh, principle for us. And the second one uh, elected that we're offering up is called Making Pedagogy. So it's, it's a reflection on what it means to, again, design and deliver education that involves the act of making, that involves the act of, of creating digital and kind of physical artefacts. And how does that change what it is that you're, you're doing as a student and what you're designing as a teacher? So those are what we're offering up. I'll be honest, I am as excited about all of the other electives that the other programmes are developing. I'm, I'm really looking forward to understanding how an individual student's sort of journey changes according to what they do. Mm. So we'll have some students potentially choosing our options. Great. We'll have some students who are going off saying, nope, that's fine. I'm going to go off and go and do storytelling. And I'm, I'm so looking forward to, to seeing what happens to see, you know, as students progress throughout the programme and end towards their, their independent research project, what influence those electives have on what it is that they are fundamentally interested in and what they want to spend 600 study hours doing for their, their research project. Mm. And with this idea of the kind of social changes and, and communities, this is maybe too tricky a question, but what is there a distinction then between a teacher and a facilitator? Oh, I think there is. And I think it goes back to that, that question, which is often asked, is do you need a teacher to learn? To which I think the obvious answer is, no, you don't need a teacher. And I think it's about the sort of the increasing recognition of the changes of, of your role, particularly, I would say, at, at postgraduate level. Because mm. 
maybe at previous levels, you could be reasonably assured that you are in a more advanced position than, than some of your students. Looking at the people who are ready to study at the RCA, uh, some of them, well, many of them are already pretty advanced in their careers, have already got quite a lot to show for it, and um, will be entering into the same competitions and, and processes as the staff. Again, brilliant. So you've got in a situation where the student might know more than you about some areas. Again, I think it's a good thing. But I think it does shift the role. And to give you kind of a practical example of, of how, how my teaching has changed on, on this, because we play so much emphasis, and I've always placed so much emphasis on, on group work and collaboration, what I notice is that whenever you kind of go to group work, as long as you've designed it well enough, there's always a momentum. There's always an energy in the room when people go off and, and you give them a prompt, they go off and talk about it. And what's really interesting is when they come back and you ask them to report back, a lot of that energy is just disappears. That excitement people have about engaging with interesting issues with other people, it goes and, and you go, right, group three, can you report back? And again, that energy is, is gone. And part of me is thinking, well, why am I doing this plenary? Why am I doing this feeding back? Who's it for? And I'm thinking, I think it's for me. I think it's for me as a teacher. And uh, whatever interesting is, is uh, actually, I'm, I'm not going to do that so much. They've had a fantastic discussion. They might be evidence of that on an online collaboration board or whatever the thing might be. Maybe they don't need to tell me what the discussion is. Maybe they can just have that discussion. And again, that for me is that, that switch from a teacher who needs to know it all to a facilitator who's creating opportunities for students to have interesting conversations with interesting people and leave it there. So that that's the, sort of my answer to that. Yeah, I guess it's the distinction, isn't it, between what learning is and what evidencing for assessment is, which I think is, has a lot to do with how art school has evolved, right? Because art school was one distinct thing and then university was kind of blueprinted on top of it. Yeah. And I think the, the really interesting area there is about the notion of experimentation because you will not find an art school in the world that doesn't talk about innovation and experimentation. Mm. And I think where that issue comes into sharp relief is when you get to the assessment and it's saying, be bold, be risky, be innovative, but also get it right. Yeah. Because your assessment is based around the presentation of the product, whatever the product may be, even the product is a painting or it's a, it's a schematic or whatever it might be. And I think that's the really interesting tension. I think if we are encouraging, as we are, students to take risks... And risks inevitably involve, by a certain kind of criteria, failures. Mm -hmm. Then I think it's really important that our assessment processes recognise that. I mean, that you are not penalised for it not turning out beautifully or exactly as you would hope it to be. That the assessment is as much about the process of learning mm -hmm. as it is about generating something you can present at a show. There's always a time when actually you do want to say, this I'm really proud of and I want to show it off. But throughout the, the program, there should be lots of opportunities to creatively fail, because I think you learn much more from that than about things that you, you kind of think that's perfect. Yeah. I mean, I spoke to Martin about this in the, the first podcast, and I sort of imagine this is going to be a running theme for oh, everything, which is the, so. the art school paradox, which is the, the more you fail, the better you are. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> in some ways. Um, so thinking about the way that these things are embedded in art school, how do these ideas start to move out into the world? Well, that is a tricky question to answer. I think, in part, it's... Well, there's, there's two sides to it for me. One of which is directly engaging with the world through your studies. Mm -hmm. 
And I think what's really interesting is you see more in in this institution, but also across the whole kind of UK HE sector about doing things like grand challenges, doing things which involve community engagement. So you're directly involving them in that process. And I think that's a really positive thing, although I think there's sometimes a tension there around the idea that universities presenting themselves as solving other people's problems. Mm. And I think the key thing for me in, in that relationship between uh, an institution and the communities it engages with is, is they are doing us a favour. We're not doing them a favour. Mm. So, and I think yeah, that, that's a key thing to establish when you're, you're engaging with communities beyond your own. Then I think it, there's that thing of explicitly talking with students and discussing them and giving them opportunities to try things out to enable them to then engage effectively with the world. And it goes to, to fundamental questions like ethics, for example. So, you know, as an institution, as with many institutions, we previously took quite a deficit model towards ethics. We would right. say uh, it's a preventative process. It's preventing uh, you from, from exposing yourself to harm. It's preventing you from exposing others to harm. But what's been really interesting over the last few years is you, you switch that model and saying, well, not only can you the experience of of education and research be a beneficial thing but it's actually fundamentally setting you up with the ethical tools to be able to engage with the world beyond your graduation and if it's not doing that enough ethics and and those issue about community engagement is not part of your practice by the end when probably we're not doing it quite right Mm. And it seems like there has been a big switch in the ethics of how people engage with the world at large over the last few years. You know, for example, uh, Heart and Soul, who work with people who are neurodivergent, to highlight what they do rather than telling someone this is a way of doing something. Yeah. Which is really important. There's also a tricky thing with the ethics as well, right, in, in terms of the being willing to fail at an institution, because within group work, there can be tricky stuff where perhaps people come with uh, difficult relationships to ethics that we are then asking them to bring to the fore in order to explore, which might not be so good for other students. Yeah, we do place a lot of emphasis on collaboration. And you recognise that it often does go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but particularly, I think, in uh, if you scale up the importance of, for example, we have a, for some of the units, we have collaborative assessment for part of it. So you have to do something develop something with other people which creates in many cases some fantastic relationships where everyone is having a wonderful time and in some cases not i think the key thing is is what kind of framework are you providing for those students to do it so mm. i think just saying collaboration is important you're going to collaborate and abandoning them to that is is a problem mm. i think you've got to kind of say if we think for example that collaboration is a fundamental part of being an educator or possibly even being someone who has a creative practice, then you've got to then design things around it. So to give people opportunities to start, well, what does this mean? Again, turn that implicit to the explicit. Yeah. And I guess that's another way of, uh, of, of thinking through how to kind of build the world you want to see as yeah. well, right? Because hopefully people will <laughs> collaborate in these environments. And then when they go out to potentially start businesses, there'll be a memory of that collaborative process, which might come into their employment ideas yeah. as well. And so on that, that we, we talk a little bit at the start about uh, this notion of, of generous thinking. Mm. And it really is, I think, incredibly important to us is that actually academic institutions, we can often celebrate ourselves for being kind of wonderful places where you're free to say whatever you want. But some of the, the things that when maybe we would, some of the assumptions that we want to test are problems that we have. 
mm. about status competition within institutions or between institutions. Mm. And that thinking, what is happening when someone is, is presenting their ideas? Are you thinking, well, actually, I want to prove that mine are better or that, that I'm better than you? Or that notion of, of generous thinking, which was sort of developed by Kathleen Fitzpatrick, I think, is that notion of not just can you understand what it is that someone is saying, Mm. But how can you help them understand? Because often when we're presenting ideas for the first time, we're all over the shop. Yeah. And actually, rather than saying, I'm going to demonstrate that your ideas aren't as good as you think they are, or mm. I'm going to demonstrate that my ideas are better than yours, it's saying, how can I help that person um, reframe, articulate, question what it is that they're presenting in order to support them and then reciprocate so that, that I get the same benefit in return. So it's, it's those kind of things I think are really fundamental to set up as an ethos at the start. Mm, and there are really important things in terms of the, the evolution of art education and, and design education, that moving away from this idea of the old master who knows absolutely everything and they, if, if they haven't said it, it's not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> and you often, I mean, it's interesting looking, we did a project a few years ago looking back at old prospectuses, or college prospectuses. Right. And you see that kind of writ large in so many of them, that sort of discussion about the atelier model. Mm. As you will, yeah, as you say, learn at the feet of, of your master. And that's a really interesting kind of uh, situation when yeah, our students' average age is 27. Yeah. And hopefully with some of the new programs, that average age starts pushing up again. Mm. Is that, you know, it's actually quite a freeing point of view from a staff member's point of view. Again, you don't have to be the master. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe you will learn as much from them as they will learn from you. Yeah. Great. Which I think at postgraduate level is what you want to, to, yeah, to be happening much more absolutely. as well, right? It's less less to do with just being a sponge, exactly. perhaps, as, a, as BA is at some point. Um, so do you have any advice for people who want to engage with the idea of creative education? Are there any artists or texts, galleries, events, things like that? I think, and I, I hear this advice in a whole range of different contexts, but I think it works equally well for education, is when you are experiencing education or whether you are um, experiencing it as an individual learner or just witnessing it, think about the choices that people are making. Really analyse that situation. Because there's a whole range of different things that, in terms of what the room looks like, where the teacher is, what they've asked you to do, what they're kind of moving towards. All of these are active choices that someone has made, some of which they may have more control over than others. Mm. But I think it's really, uh, when I quite enjoy this, when, particularly when the pressure is off me as a teacher, is actually looking and saying, well, what, on what basis are they doing this? Why are they doing that? What are they trying to get to? Why have they done that? Mm. And so I definitely think if you are someone who is interested in education, um, analyse, be a learner, analyse what happens. And well, I, I hesitate to mention this, but you're one of the people who've been through the PG Cert. Have, and what's yeah. really interesting <laughs> is that a lot of people uh, like you, is like you kind of get used to the role of being a teacher. And suddenly you're back to being a student. And all of the kind of behaviours that a lot of our kind of staff are go, oh, students are doing this again. They then exhibit themselves when they become a mm. student. And it's, I think it's that really interesting is analyse that. What's going on there? Yeah. And I guess that comes back again to the idea of non-standardising non the way that things are done. It's more about standardising what the intent of the activity is yes. rather than standardising what the activity itself is. Yeah, exa exactly. And I think... I mean, there are so many people that are worth reading um, if you want to sort of really get your head around uh, education. But I think starting off with people like Bell Hooks, because mm. I think one of the interesting things, but particularly within a sort of um, creative arts point of view, is that notion of questioning your assumptions. And we exist within kind of powerful structures. 
and I think is really understanding. And we are subject to those powerful structures as well. Um, is really understanding what it is that the relationship is between the institution and the teacher, the teacher and the student, and the student in the institution. I think it's trying to read a little bit more about that is a really uh, fundamental thing. Because mm. I've probably done this to you at some point, but I think it's absolutely fascinating that you walk into a room and you don't know anyone there, and one human being stands up, often in front of a screen, and they ask you to do stuff, and you do it. <laughs> I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Or, or don't. Or they don't do it. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's credible that so often they do. Yeah. But it's... It, I mean, this isn't meant to be an interview of me, but uh, just a, a story that I... Because I, I like to use Pauline Oliveros's tuning meditation yeah. as a thing that I do with students, which is where basically everyone contributes vocally to a texture that's created by matching someone else's note. And whenever I normally, whenever I do it, it goes really, really well. And everyone gets involved. And even if they're a bit nervous at the beginning, they get into it. But the last time that I did it in a group activity, I spent 20 minutes sitting in silence with me being the only person that made a, a noise. And it was, it was really difficult because you get, once again, I guess it's about reading the room right yeah. because i became so confident in the fact that this is this is the one thing i do that always works and then when it didn't it was it was horrible but i mean that's an interesting case i mean is it necessarily a bad thing that everyone sat there in silence i, I do remember um, an old print um tutor saying to me that he had one tutorial uh with a student and asked them a question mm. and the student said can i just have a moment to think about it and that moment extended to 20 minutes right and so they sat there in absolute silence in 20 minutes. Now, I think I would have probably found that quite an uncomfortable experience towards the end. Yeah. But they sat there in silence. And at the end of it, the student said, I think what I want to say is this. And they had a wonderful discussion for the, the amount of time they had available. Yeah. And again, that tests a lot of assumptions. If you had a 30-minute tutorial and 20 minutes of that was silence, you think, is that a good thing? Yeah. But in that particular case, maybe it was. Yeah. Maybe it created the space for students to have that a thought they wouldn't have had otherwise. So, mm. and I mean, yeah, that issue about silence, I think, is a brilliant one because I think famously, from a teaching's point of view, silence is so awkward. Yeah, and it is a real ha good habit to get into to hold silence. Yeah, because I think, it, as a student, often I'm I'm sat there and someone asks me a question, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to say anything, mm. or, or I've said something already, so I'm going to be quiet. And you wait, and you wait. And that 20 seconds feels like forever. And you think, actually, there is a question I've asked. And if they say, well, actually, oh, if no one's got any questions and away we go, if someone had just waited that little bit longer, mm. if you held that silence for 30 seconds, someone, someone's got a question. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's, it's a real effort of will to hold silences. Yeah. And sometimes we used to do a, a thing where we'd say, well, we're just going to hold the silence now. There's no question. Yeah. We're going to get together in this room and hold this silence and 20 seconds feels like a long time. Yeah. But it's worth it. Yeah, sitting in that kind of discomfort is normally a really, really useful thing. Yeah. And another example for me is, is that issue of, of, of forced silence. Is, um, one of the student union uh, sabbatical teams did a, a big project about what they called equal voices in the room. And that notion of, of how do you ensure that there's fairness in group discussions, which form so much part of the creative arts. Yeah. And they introduced me and other people who attended the session to the sort of um, the long table etiquette from Lois Weaver. Right. That notion of you imagining that learning space as a sort of a, like a dinner table. And only the people around the dinner table 
can speak. So it's a so it's a group tutorial. So you yeah. you have a theme, uh, you're talking, but only the people that are on around the table can speak. Everyone else is an audience around the edge, and it was really interesting for a lot of people how uncomfortable they were with not being able to speak. Mm. Now you could come into that conversation. What you could do is if you wanted to contribute, you walked up to someone, just tap them on the shoulder and ask them if you could come in and they would leave the table and you would sit down at the table and then you were one of those kind of six to eight people who were then contributing to it. And I thought it was fascinating. And I thought it was fascinating to see um, the different dynamics. Some people maybe being encouraged to speak who wouldn't necessarily step forward. Also, chatterboxes like me going, oh, I've got something I really want to say. Mm. But you can't say it. The rules of the, the this engagement are like, you can't say anything. So say, well, I can't say anything. I'm going to listen instead. And that was brilliant for me. Yeah. So in the end, I think I, I, I don't think I ever came to the table. Or if I did, I came very briefly. And I'm thinking, I'm really, really going to enjoy sitting and listening. But and again, it's that taking of, of something as an implicit assumption and saying explicit, creating rules to tweak it and say, now how are you going to react? Mm. I thought it was brilliant. It's, it, it sounds brilliant, but it's also, I just saw something the other day about uh, ADHD and uh, the impulse for someone who has ADHD to interrupt, not because they want to interrupt, but because they simply have something that they need to say at that particular time. So I guess it, it, it's difficult sometimes yeah. to, to hold back with these things. And I think that's a really good example of the fact that um, competing interests sometimes a little bit. People mm. are very different and people have different preferences. And, and, and when you are a teacher, when you're designing teaching, you have this impossible situation to some extent that you've got incredible diversity of interests and experiences and perspectives around the table. And how do you accommodate it all? Mm. And there was a really big trend sort of probably about 20 years ago to, to define learning styles. Everyone was very excited about learning styles. And the idea is you would diagnose exactly what your preferences are, how your brain thinks. Mm. And everyone was very enthusiastic about it and there are lots of different kind of mechanisms that kind of came out. And it was always back to that fundamental question, then what do you do as a teacher when you've got such a variety of, 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 of people around the kind of the, the virtual or physical table? And learning styles has, has sort of died out a little bit, in part because it's not very robust as a kind of methodology. Mm. It's not reliable or kind of valid necessarily or can't be demonstrated to be. And people change over time. Mm. Well, but and also people must say what they, they, they wish their learning style was yeah, rather than what it yeah, is sometimes. of course. But I think for me that the sort of learning styles discussion has really kind of helped not necessarily to everyone to diagnose themselves mm. and for a teacher to know all of this and be able to respond to all of this, but to actually have that open, explicit discussion. Rather than me knowing everything about everyone in the room, tell me. And mm. you creating opportunities. What, what do you like? What are you going to, what's your preferences? And so it doesn't necessarily mean we'll always do what you want because some of your interests might might be competing. Mm. But at least if everyone is aware, Chris is going to continue putting his hand up and going, oh, I've got a point to make here. Yeah. Uh, and then also may think, well, maybe actually, if that's your instinct, great, we'll bring you in. But now be quiet and let mm. other people come in and let them spend some time listening. As long as everyone understands what the preferences are, I think it's really useful. I mean, uh, on the PG Cert a few years ago, someone did a project around just emotional check-ins. Mm. So at the start of a, a session, uh, they were doing a, a workshop. How was everyone feeling? And it was really interesting that we'd very rarely ask that. Mm. How was everyone feeling right now? 
And in a hopefully in a kind of supportive environment, everyone's saying, well, actually, I'm, I didn't sleep at all last night. So I yeah. feel pretty wretched right now. Or I've got this going on, that going on. And suddenly you understood that rather than everyone being box fresh and coming into it as sort of eager students to learn that everyone had problems. Mm. Everyone had, uh, you know, different um, levels of energy and enthusiasm for that particular day. And that you can adapt to that. You can sort of say, well, that's fine. Great. You, you, know, you know, sorry that you didn't have a good night's sleep. But when, for example, you're being a little bit behind the curve, I'll understand and I won't push you on that. I think mm. it's really useful to that have that level of dialogue. And it's something I certainly as an individual teacher, I want to do more of. Yeah, I guess it's about setting honesty as well, right? Yeah. And and pulling down this divide once again between the the master and the student. You know, yeah. we're we're all in this together, and your 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 teacher is just as likely to have had a bad night's sleep as you are. <laughs> exactly. I've got one final question that might be a bit too big, but here we go. Okay. In a time when there is no time, how do we make sure that we embed all of these <laughs> these productive ideas? I mean, I feel. The lack of time as much as as anybody. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm, I'm not going to give anyone else advice because I'm always kind of quite shy of, of of giving anyone advice if they haven't actively sought it. Right. All I can say from my own point of view is often it's it's an investment of time. I think um, if you're in a situation where you're not giving yourself enough time to, to prepare for something, whatever that might be, then it, yes, less likely to have a positive experience from that. So I think it's for me, in terms of how I've done it, is is a greater sense of prioritization. Because mm-hmm. there is quite a lot of time in the day. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the things I'm doing are thinking, well, who's going to benefit from that? Am I going to benefit from that? Is anyone else going to benefit from that? And in which case, I'm going to invest my time in making sure that I've got, you know, I've given myself enough time to kind of plan. But also to think about, well, what happens if it doesn't work? Mm. I think from a teaching point of view, I think that's, really important because you can design something which as you said and in your example earlier you've tried something lots of times before absolutely confident that it it works and it doesn't mm. and i think that happens all the time it yeah. happens all the time in life and it certainly happens in education when you're thinking these people are not getting this and i think it's it's invest the time in sort of preparing it but also recognize it's not working yeah. what, what else are we going to do and i think um for me, it's 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 a really tricky one because I think all of us kind of do feel that kind of sense that we never have enough time to do all the things we do, or we don't recognise the competing demands that we might have. Um, but I've never regretted investing a bit more time in something. I've never kind of said, "Well, I'm, I'm not going to do that." I'm going to invest time in something that really matters to me and matters to other people. Mm. Yeah, I've never regretted doing that. Great. Well, brilliant. Thank you very much for being with us here today, Chris, and being so generous with what you've uh, you've given us. Uh, you've been listening to Arcast, the Royal College of Art podcast, home to the next generation of artists, innovators, and entrepreneurs, and the world's number one art and design university. You can learn more about our programs at rca.ac.uk, as well as finding news and events relating to the college and our application portal if you're a prospective student. Mm-hmm.